This episode of the Holobiont podcast is with George Contreras, a professor of law at the University of Utah and an elected member of the American Law Institute. He specializes in intellectual property and science policy and has recently published a book, The Genome Defense, Inside the Epic Legal Battle to Determine Who Owns Your DNA. And this is really a fascinating deep dive into all of the sticky topics around DNA patenting as a practice. It centers on the historical case of AMP versus Myriad, which is the case in which the US Supreme Court decided that naturally occurring gene sequences cannot be patented. So we discuss why patenting DNA is even done, whether it should be done, and future prospects for intellectual property in genetics. So if we could start by just speaking at a higher level, what kind of inventions are patentable? And I guess if we were to classify objects into whether they can or cannot be patented, what kind of criteria would we use? So this is pretty similar across countries, but I'll, I'll use the terminology uh, that we use in the U.S., which I'm most familiar with, right? So there are four categories of patentable inventions. There are machines, manufacturers, right, things that are made by machines, processes, or compositions of matter, right? Those are like new metallic alloys and synthetic fibers. Those are pretty broad categories um, but an invention has to fall into one of those categories. And I guess at the higher level, maybe just to take even a few more steps back, for something to be patentable, it has to be novel and useful. I found that um, the first descriptions of patents were in the Republic of Venice in 15th century, and they said, if you can issue a patent on a device that's new and useful. And so given that, I wonder, why is it that DNA suddenly fell into this gray area? Um, is it not new? Is it not useful? And how did these debates play out? Yes. So DNA is certainly useful. It's useful for us and every living organism, right? Um, the question is whether the DNA that somebody extracts and then uh, tries to patent has a known use, right? There has to be some known use for it. So the first DNA patents that uh, were, were patent applications that were filed, were filed on short uh, fragments of DNA that were being sequenced in the early 1990s called expressed sequence tags or ESTs. Um, and these were short, right? Anything from say 20 or so bases to uh, maybe a couple hundred. They potentially, you know, were, they, when you put them all together, of course, they would form the human genome, but we were like many years away from that at that stage. Um, so when researchers tried to patent these, they ran into utility problems at the patent office because nobody knew what the function, if any, of these short gene or these short DNA fragments were. Um, so you can't just patent a little stretch of DNA without knowing its function. By the time though that we were able to uh, identify specific human genes, we typically, in the early days, in the late 80s and uh, 90s, were identifying them because they were associated with disease or some particular physical trait that was clearly hereditary, right? So epidemic uh, or uh, genetic epidemiologists um, would deduce that certain diseases or traits or disease susceptibilities were hereditary based on family histories and so forth, and then go look 
for the genes themselves. If you find a gene associated with a disease or that has certain variants that are associated with a disease, then you do have utility in the gene because you can use the gene to screen for the disease, possibly to develop diagnostics and therapies, right? So that's how you overcome that utility hurdle with human genes. Um, but the other hurdle, and there, there are quite a few hurdles, but the other one that you mentioned is novelty, uh, right? A uh, To get a patent, an invention has to be new, which makes perfect sense. You can't go get a patent on something that somebody else invented last week. It has to be new. So how is a gene new that obviously exists inside of our bodies um, and has for you know, millions and millions of, of years, these are the same sequences have been out there or even billions of years, you know, for some of the oldest uh, fragments of our DNA. So it's not new. Uh, how do you, how do you get a patent on that? Well, some have called this a lawyer's trick, but I'll explain to you the lawyer's trick, right? The, the idea is that inside of Again, take humans. This applies to all, you know, living organisms. Take a human inside of the nuclei of our cells. We have our chromosomes, 23 chromosomes, and on each chromosome are thousands of genes. And of course, you know, intergenetic DNA, um, all strung together in very long chains. If you were to pluck out a particular gene from that long chromosome, right, then you have a much shorter fragment of DNA. Not only do you have a shorter fragment, but you have broken at either end the covalent bonds that linked it up to the rest of the, um, the DNA chain, the molecule. So you've created effectively a new molecule that doesn't exist in nature. You've got a freestanding gene, right? A sequence of say 100,000 uh, base pairs um, that came off of a, a chromosome that was 2 million uh, bases long or or longer, right? Not two, yeah, two hundred million uh, bases long. So you have something that doesn't exist in nature, and the test for patentability in the U.S. and most other countries is that in order to get a patent, the thing that you invent has to be markedly different from something that occurs in nature, right? I mean, just think about it. Every physical object in the universe is made up of the same elemental atoms, right? And so it's, you know, don't invent, you know, you've got carbon atoms, hydrogen atoms, iron atoms, uh, you stick them together and you make a mousetrap. Well, the mousetrap may be novel. It's different than those atoms that were floating around before, right? So if it's markedly different from the thing that exists in nature, you can get a patent. This is how you can get a patent on an isolated and purified gene because the isolated and purified gene doesn't exist inside of our cells. It only exists when it's stuck into the larger chromosome. Okay, right. So the thinking was that an isolated gene fragment is not some form of product of nature or some law of nature. Um, that was the theory. I mean, that theory was disputed, but that was the theory that the patent office used to approve all of these patents. And I do want to come back to this question of usefulness you mentioned, because these are some issues, obviously, that emerged during the Human Genome Sequencing Project, where some people were 
um, trying to, I guess, obtain patents on sequences that were shorter than the genes alone, and in themselves were purely descriptive rather than providing any uh, insights into biological function. And on top of that, if several people fragmented several segments, that means that the team that did do the effort to sequence the whole thing and get the function couldn't have patent coverage anymore because it, like in a piecemeal way, it had been given away. But now I wonder concerning utility, whether you can ever get a patent on predicted utility. So if we think of many times when you discover new genes, uh, we don't we don't have an assigned function. We call them a domain of unknown function. But maybe we're just missing, let's say, maybe 10,000 sequences could be enough to, by comparison, infer function. We could reasonably expect that in five years we'll have elucidated the function of that gene. So is that ever the case that you can make the claim that, I don't know, based on current progress, like Moore's law kind of, or, so, or something like that, we can expect that this will be useful, be resolved, and obtain a patent on that thinking. The use has to be pretty specific. So if you look back at the old EST patent claims that that were ultimately rejected, right? You know, of course, the, the patent lawyers who were prosecuting these applications knew this utility test. And so they speculated about the use of these fragments. They could be useful as probes or, you know, for research purposes and reagents or whatever. Those uses weren't specific enough, right? It has to be fairly specific. It doesn't have to be entirely known, though. So take BRCA, right, which is the topic of, of the book, really. Um, once the BRCA gene is sequenced, you can credibly say, we think that this gene could be useful in developing, um, you know, cancer therapeutic um, a chemotherapy agent of some kind that's targeted to uh, to this gene. You know, that hasn't been invented, doesn't exist yet, but it's plausible and it's specific enough to get a patent. But if you just said, we think that, you know, this chain of 100,000 base pairs could be useful in creating antivirals, but maybe, but it's, it's just not specific enough. And so you mentioned BRCA1, let's get into it. Uh, because it really was at the center of, like, I guess, one of the biggest issue in uh, genetic patents, which was the AMP versus Myriad case in 2013. So do you want to walk us through um, what that case was and also maybe why it was so significant? Sure, sure. So the, the case, again, which is which is the whole, you know, the, the book is really about the um, this AMP versus Myriad case. It it revolves around uh, two patents, BRCA1 and 2, that were first sequenced um, in 1994 and 1995, respectively, um, in an international race, right, to uh, define the genes that were linked to hereditary breast cancer. About 5% of breast cancers are hereditary, roughly. Um, in 1990, just take another few years back in 1990, a researcher at Berkeley named Mary Claire King, uh, again, using genetic epidemiology tools, located uh, the gene. She, she predicted that there was such a gene, BRCA1, um, that existed and isolated its rough location to the long arm of chromosome 17. Um, but that's as far as she could go with uh, epidemiology tools and models. Um, so in 1990, this international race began to 
locate and sequence the BRCA gene, wherever it might be. And uh, numerous groups throughout the world jumped into this race knowing how valuable that gene would be. Um, and one of the groups was a group uh, here in Utah uh, that came out of the University of Utah. The investigator, Mark Skolnick, founded a company called Myriad uh, with uh, Wally Gilbert, who you know was, was from Harvard, the founder of Biogen Corporation, and some local, vent local venture capitalists um, in order to find this gene. And to make a long story short, they did. They found the gene, they sequenced it, and they got patents. And with those patents, they essentially um, shut down BRCA screening at any other uh, site, any clinic or other location in the United States. Um, and so this caused a lot of controversy in the screening and genetic counseling uh, and genetics communities. Nevertheless, the patents were valid patents. The patent office was issuing them under this theory, right, that they had for a long time. So that all, you know, the patents are issued in about 1997. By about 2000, 2001, Myriad is the only laboratory who's performing this testing in the United States. And they're charging, you know, a lot for the testing, over $3,000, um, which is, you know, in 1990s dollars uh, uh, is still pretty significant. And this was not covered by most insurance policies early on in the United States. It wasn't covered by the federal Medicare or Medicaid programs. Um, and so there are many women who are unable to get testing. And this controversy over the lack of affordability of this testing led many people to think about how you could allow patents to issue on these genes in such a way that um, you could exclude everybody else from the market. And this attracted the attention of the American Civil Liberties Union, uh, the ACLU, uh, and the Public Patent Foundation, who decided to bring a lawsuit challenging the patents on these genes. And, and not just to try, you know, I should make it clear, there was a lot of patent litigation that went on in the United States before this around DNA-based patents. But that was always one company arguing that another company's patents were not valid for some reason, maybe because the first company had discovered the thing first, or there was some defect in the patent. That happened all the time. Um, the ACLU's case was different. They didn't just want to attack Myriad's patents. They wanted to attack gene patenting as a practice um, and uh, eliminate all of these patents across the country. Um, and they they decided they would do this in this lawsuit, which they started to think about in 2005 and finally brought in 2009. Okay, so yeah, this wasn't just some boring old litigation. It was essentially kind of uncovering like a fundamental flaw in the patent system, or at least making a primarily ethical opposition rather than a legal one. It's interesting, yes, because, of course, the ACLU had never been very interested in patent law. They never brought a patent case before. Um, they were interested because of the ethical issues. It became a women's rights issue when this is really breast cancer and ovarian cancer um, that, that primarily struck women, uh, access to health issue, right? So really a civil rights uh, set of issues. Uh, that being said, they had to try the case 
as, like you said, a boring uh, statutory interpretation case under Section 101 of the Patent Act. Um, so they had a very different reason for bringing the case than simply because, you know, they thought this legal issue needed to be corrected. Right. And can we give the spoilers of the outcome? Well, it took uh, many years, four years, and finally gets to the U.S. Supreme Court in 2013 after many twists and turns. Um, and uh, the Supreme Court does invalidate Myriad's patents, all of them, uh, except except a couple of exceptions, um, on the basis that, yeah, those genes, they are the same genes, the DNA sequence is the same in the body or outside of the body. It doesn't matter that you've extracted the genes from the chromosome, that's irrelevant uh, to their function, um, and so these are not patentable. Okay, so it's interesting that the final decision was made on, I guess, the natural versus artificial argument rather, rather than some moral argument. Because when you do look at a lot of the opposition and the articles in the Myriad case, it primarily is moral, which I actually think is quite interesting because when you, you see what arguments people are bringing forward, there's some aspects of, I don't know, the human genome being some sacred thing that cannot be in the realm of commercialization it's universal, it's it's almost like a, a public common good. Um, but in a way, all of these issues are a lot broader than like patent law. And all of these like societal considerations would boil back down to the arena of patents. So we were almost trying to solve too many issues and boil them down to the purely legal side. Yes, that that's exactly right. But Remember, there is no purely legal decision, right? This is, is certainly in the and 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 you know the, uh, you you, uh, you you have a French background, which is a civil law uh, background, where where I think um, there is more belief in a a code that that does answer uh, all of the questions. But I think in the common law system, I think most of us who study this understand that the law itself is indeterminate um, and the outcomes of cases depend on all sorts of factors, including social factors. And judges and juries are human and they make decisions based on a whole range of factors, potentially beyond the narrow legal question before them. Sometimes these legal questions I mean, in, in fact, I would say most of the time, the legal question can be answered both ways. Um, and it's simply a question of which of those two ways, you, which of those two pathways you decide to walk down. And, and which uh, path you choose is often guided by some of these external questions, uh, external to the legal doctrine. So I, I have a paper, not this book, but but a paper that I wrote in uh, 2016 that talks about six different narrative strains that appear in, in this case and all of the arguments that people were making about this case beyond the doctrinal argument under the Patent Act, right? You've got scientists. I mean, from a scientist standpoint, you know, many scientists thought that it was ridiculous to uh, grant patents on these genes just because it was so easy to sequence genes, right? Anybody could do this. This isn't a 
discovery. This is just routine lab work. So, you know, why would people deserve that? Um, you have, you know, totally different arguments around access to health, access to uh, to medicine, the sort of moral arguments. You, On the other side, you have people arguing uh, that you need these patents as an incentive to promote biotechnology. Biotechnology industry is an important industry in the United States. You don't want to disrupt that. It's a very economic-focused argument. Um, and then a whole range, you know, the purely moral arguments, these patents commoditize the human being, right? This is not the kind of thing that should be bought and sold. So they they exist, they're out there, and they're not unimportant, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I want to bounce back on a few of these narratives you mentioned, just to finish off on the moral side. Are there in any laws explicit um indications that you cannot grant a patent for a moral question. Let's say like you make a very toxic uh, poison or a carcinogen and you try to patent that, would you be would it be refused on moral grounds? So there so in some countries the answer is yes, right? So the European patent system does have a um you know sort of an order morale or public order uh, exclusion from patenting. These can be denied. We don't have that specifically in the U.S., but for many years we've had something called the moral utility doctrine, um, which again, we talked about utility uh, at the beginning. So this is a corollary to that that says, well, if this invention is so immoral, then by definition it cannot be useful, right? It is not useful to do something very immoral. And uh, Justice Joseph Story who was a famous 19th century um, Supreme Court justice in the United States made this rule essentially um, saying, you know, something like devices for assassination of political figures or you know, poisoning people, um, these sorts of things would be immoral and should not be patented. That doctrine has mostly disappeared today. Um, mostly because you can always find some use for, you know, these devices. There are thousands upon thousands of patents on weapons of all kinds. Um, poisons, of course, you know, we use them for rodent control and a whole variety of, um, of different agricultural purposes. Um, so they're really, and, and, uh, uh, other things that people might consider immoral. There's a huge, huge volume of patents on um, sex toys and uh, sexual aids. And so, you know, uh, the morality is relative, uh, as it turns out. And um, so we basically don't have this exception anymore. Right. It's back to the common law and the flexibility and the fluidity of yeah. it. Um, and then to go back on the economic argument, which I think is important to nuance because patents aren't just like an evil tool of capitalism. They are also, uh, you know, by definition, they're like a monopoly right granted for the commercialization of an invention. And they kind of come to reward all the risk and money that has come in researching that invention. And so obviously for a company, uh, they invest all this effort in R&D, which is especially in pharma and biotech, you know, it takes years to get a product to market. So in exchange, you get that coverage. 
Um, and then I guess even in terms of society, when you file a patent, you are obliged to disclose the invention, which makes an extensive description of the product available for the competitors to build upon it. Yes. Um, so just to state this out there, obviously, for the listeners, it's not the simplistic picture. But a, I guess an argument that's made is also, let's say we remove patents or we don't patent inventions. When something falls in the public domain, you could be said, well, there's no incentive to commercialize it and it's going to become unused and essentially become wasted knowledge. And I wonder if you have counterexamples of this. So something that has been put in the public domain, but that doesn't mean that uh, you know, it hasn't been successfully commercialized and ended up having benefits for patients. Yes, well, there there are many of these uh, these counter examples, um, and and so you know the incentive argument is a very basic argument. It is actually the rationale for patents that is included in the United States Constitution. Right, they are there in order to produce this incentive uh, for people to make inventions. If if you could just make the invention, and tomorrow somebody sees it. Um, and just decides to copy it, you know, you've spent a million dollars researching it to make the invention. Your neighbor sees it and he says, oh, I like that. I'm going to make one too. He spent nothing. Um, and so no one is going to spend the million dollars to make the invention. So we have fewer inventions, right? We don't want that. But there are, but that that assumes that all innovative activity sort of exists in this free market system, right? We, it's not true. Um, one of the major counter arguments is that a lot of basic R&D is funded by the government. Um, in the United States, the National Institutes of Health spend about $40 billion per year uh, supporting R&D um, in research institutions and companies around the country. Um, that is an incentive, right? Getting a grant from NIH is an incentive for researchers to do their research. And, you know, I think it's been shown that that's the real incentive. Um, getting your NIH grant, that's immediate, right? That happens right away. In fact, you don't even start the work until you get the grant. Um, so that's your incentive to do the work. A patent, first you have to be successful in your research. You have to find something, then file the patent, and then it takes years, years and years, and a lot of uncertainty before the patent is ever issued. And so the main incentive, you know, for most academic researchers is the government funding for their grants. Um, you know, and you can see this with the BRCA story, right, of the 12 competing groups that were racing to find the BRCA genes, 11 of them were academic groups. And, you know, they were they were doing this to win glory, right, to uh, bring fame to their laboratories, to, uh, to get more grant funding down the road. Um, Myriad was the only one that was a company doing this purely for profit. Um, so there are many other alternatives uh, there. That being said, you know, these things that go into the public domain, um, they they are especially useful if they are research tools. And I think the way many people think about sort of basic genomic sequences is that they are tools that enable other research. Um, and so even if they're not patented, 
And, and in fact, it's better not to patent them so that everybody has access to them. And then everybody can use that as a basis for new innovations, whether it's drugs or vaccines or, you know, agricultural products, uh, you name it. Right. And what you're describing is essentially the model of the Internet. When I think of it, so much of the Internet has been open source. And of course, it's covered by intellectual property, but not the same families and patents. So it is worth noting that um, patents are not the only form of intellectual property rights. There's also things like licensing or also trade secrecy. So obviously, Coke, Coca-Cola is a mm. biggest example of this, where the formula remains secret. But do you think that other types of intellectual property than patents would make sense in genetic testing? Would it be economically viable and, I guess, reasonable? Well, sure. So trade secrets are have been very much in the news recently. Um, so and then let's go back to Myriad, right? Myriad realized, you know, one thing about patents is they only last for a limited amount of time. Um at the time of the Myriad, Myriad's patents, they would last 17 years from the date they were issued. Uh, today, this has changed. Now patents last for 20 years from the date that the application is filed. Roughly the same amount of time. Um, but those disappear, right? They disappear. Trade secrets never go away as long as you keep it a secret. Um, and so Myriad realized early on that its patents would expire someday. And so as it performed BRCA tests on human samples that came to its laboratory, you know, it would give the results back, of course, to the patient, um, but it would also keep the, um, the sequence. And, you know, there were, you, you mentioned sort of variants of unknown significance, uh, VUS, they would collect all of these variants. And over time, they would collect enough samples and enough sequences to see patterns and realize some of these VUSs, actually, we know what now we know what they do. They do have some relationship to uh, to cancer, but we're gonna keep that secret, right? We will keep that secret so that we can offer a much better test than anybody else. Um, and Myriad kept its database secret um, since from the 90s until today, until just, I think this week, or last week, they announced that they would finally release their proprietary database to ClinVar, uh, the NIH public database of, um, of variants uh, of known significance, uh, which was a huge, a uh, huge announcement, and um, you know something that will be very good for the breast cancer community. Okay, I didn't know that. It's, the thing is, I it's not. I guess trade secrecy isn't possible at all cases. Like, let's just say you're making a diagnostic on a small virus like hepatitis B. Um, it doesn't have that many genes. Its sequence is not that long. And any, I guess, group skilled in the art, which is the, the legal term for it, or like, I guess, with the relevant expertise, could without too much trouble probably guess the sequence that we use for the, for the diagnostics. Which is why I, I was asking this question is, you know, would it really make sense in all cases with um, gene testing? No, you're you're totally right. Trade secrecy is very powerful, but it only works in limited circumstances, right? If if there's a product that's available to the market that someone can look at and reverse engineer, then too bad. It's not a secret uh, anymore. 
uh, trade secrecy is most valuable and strongest for things like manufacturing processes, right? And this has come up a lot with um, the COVID-19 mRNA vaccines, which are quite difficult um, to manufacture. Even if you know the theory of how an mRNA vaccine works, it's a long way between the theory and uh, a factory um, that produces these vaccines. Um, and so there has been some controversy about the companies like Moderna not revealing its trade secrets, not uh, helping um, say the African um, a vaccine coalition to, to manufacture these things. But but yes, a, you know, a simple product, I, I make a new uh, type of mousetrap as soon as I sell it on the market, you see it, you can make it, which is why patents are helpful, right? Then even if you see it, even if you can copy it, you're not allowed to uh, to make it. Um, so you, you did mention COVID um, and mRNA vaccines, and I'm interested to move on to that topic because obviously the human genome isn't the, the only genome out there. And right. a big question is the genomes of all of these pathogens and also future emerging pathogens. So what does the intellectual property landscape look like um, regarding pathogens? Yeah, so this is very interesting. And I've actually just written a paper um, on this topic um, because it's very important given the uh, the WHO's pandemic treaty that's in negotiation right now. So you're absolutely right. Even before, long before we sequenced the human genome, in 1987, um, the, um, the viral genome for hepatitis C was sequenced. Um, because you're right, they're much, much shorter, maybe 100,000 times shorter than the human genome. Um, these viruses have, you know, something like four to eight genes, so it's like pretty simple. Um, and so, yes, under the old regime, before this Myriad case in the U.S., and most, you, could, you could patent these, and, and this happened. So hepatitis C was the first one, but, but many followed. So SARS, um, right, uh, the, the, the predecessor of uh, COVID, right? Uh, the first uh, SARS-CoV uh, virus was sequenced um, and, and patented back around 2002 when it broke out. Um, H5N1 influenza, the, uh, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, another coronavirus, MERS, um, all of these viral genomes were patented immediately uh, upon their first elucidation. And this just created problems um, in the research community. It made collaboration more difficult. You had to sign licensing agreements. You, it's not a certainty that you could collaborate, uh, right? The uh, hepatitis C virus was um, uh, patented by employees of Chiron Corporation, right? Um, and so they weren't cooperating with anybody. Um, and so that changed, interestingly, after the Myriad decision, um, such that with subsequent outbreaks, um, Ebola, uh, Zika virus, um, and now, you know, SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19 uh, virus, um, there hasn't been patenting of the um, of the viral genomes. And yeah, as, as we've seen with SARS-CoV-2, the response was incredibly fast, right? The Chinese researchers within a couple of days uh, uploaded the sequence to GenBank. 
within a week, um, you know, researchers around the world were using it. it. In a couple of weeks, the first diagnostic tests were being developed. And, you know, the, the, the amount of international research and the speed of the international research was truly incredible. And one of the things that made it so fast was that we did not have this initial barrier of patents covering that, that viral genome sequence. Now, there are tons of patents out there, right? So the mRNA vaccines are covered with patents. There are patents on everything from, you know, the, um, the lipid nanoparticles to the spike protein mechanisms to just methods of manufacturing, um, delivery, storage, all of these things are, are patented. So there's plenty of room to patent innovations by companies, but that that baseline genomic sequence um, is not patentable yet. And the reason this is so important though, is that there are efforts to make it patentable again, right? And, and this is again, why I've written this paper and I've been speaking about this topic um, as much as I can, that there's, there's a bill that's been introduced um, in the US Senate uh, that would basically reverse the myriad decision, say, okay, now, you know, uh, DNA, RNA sequences are again patentable as long as they're isolated and purified um, in some way, going exactly back to the previous, um, you know, the previous landscape, which I think is a big problem. Right. Yeah, because it's it's really hard to overstate how much the sequence of COVID being open access like had a tremendous impact of the pandemic. I mean, from vaccine design, even if you think of the millions of uh, PCR tests done, had someone, let's say, put a patent on the N protein, like the gene which is used for the RT-PCR. Mm-hmm. But, um, and so I believe that the WHO actually called for some like suspension of patents on vaccines. Um, but from what I understand, that didn't extend to masks, ventilators, drugs. So not having patents is one thing, but it really also takes the full spectrum of measures um, to be considered, but also, I guess, technology transfer and actually carrying over that know-how to other countries, which is a whole other challenge. It, it is. And and the WHO, the, the IP waiver um, that it enacted earlier this year, it it's one of these things that satisfied nobody, right? Um, because it, it it only applies in least developed countries. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not applying in the US, in the UK, in France, in Germany, right? In Japan, where most of these products are actually manufactured. Um, it's only applying in, in less developed countries. And, and that's not that helpful, um, you know? Um, you, uh, on the other hand, people who are very pro-patent find it of terrible, uh, terrible also. So really satisfied nobody. And it only relates to vaccines also, right? It doesn't even relate to diagnostics or therapeutics, uh, even on COVID-19. Right. And you mentioned, so you mentioned several countries, and that's one thing that's quite puzzling about patents is that they're juristically restricted rights. So they are true in one one entity, which may be, let's say, the country of Germany. Um, but of course, complex manufacturing processes become spread, outsourced, offshored in different locations, which means that patent coverage can break down. This will uh, possibly like increase even more as you know we have supply chains spread across the world. So how 
do you think this will be resolved, and particularly in the case of biotech products? Yeah, it's it's a great question. Um, every you're right. Every country has its own patent system. Um, Europe is somewhat unified. There's a European patent office, um, but but outside of Europe, in most every country—Japan, Korea, China, U.S., Canada, Australia—they all have their own patent system. So, a company who wants to patent its product has to choose carefully, right? There's something like, I don't know, 160, 190 different countries that will issue patents. Of course, the cost would be astronomical, right? To file for a patent in every one of these countries, um, especially because you have to translate the document into the local language in all of these countries. So you pick, you pick the countries that are going to be the most useful, like the most, the biggest markets, or the places where it's going to be manufactured um, or, or researched, right? So, you know, there are probably 20 countries, uh, 20 patent jurisdictions that most of the big uh, patents are filed in, you know, North America, Australia, um, you know, the, the Pacific Rim uh, economies, Japan, Korea, China, Europe, um, Russia, you know, probably India, um, a few others, right? If you do that, then yes, if you can figure out how to go to, you know, let's just say Ghana, um, and I mentioned them for a specific reason. Uh, if you decide you want to, uh, you can go to Ghana and you can build your mRNA vaccine factory and manufacture as much as you want. And if you can do it, then you're okay, right? There's no way to stop you from doing that. But that's very difficult, right? There, there really aren't that many countries that have the skilled workforce, um, the technological infrastructure, um, you know, the supply chains to make that happen. Um, I mentioned Ghana only to, to illustrate that actually the, the, the world is changing and, and certainly in the, in the area of sequencing. Um, you know, it used to be that sequencing, well, we spent billions of dollars to sequence like, the human genome uh, for the first time, um, and it took 10 years or whatever uh, that was. I mean, now, of course, this is uh, becoming very cheap, uh, very fast. Um, I saw an estimate that, you know, just sequencing the uh, SARS-CoV-2 genome, you know, costs about $120 you know, all in, including isolating the virus from the human bloodstream and and whatnot. And so with a sequencer that you buy from Illumina or somebody, you can do that anywhere, anywhere in the world. And by sort of mid-2021, Ghana actually had sequenced twice as many SARS-CoV-2 genomes as Germany had, um, you know, and it's, it's, uh, it's, so there is a flattening and a democratization of science that that is coming. Right, yeah, but I guess from the first part of what your answer, if I were to place myself in the shoes of a young biotech leader, it's like diminishing returns to try to get really like universal coverage because I'm gonna exhaust the funds of my biotech uh, right. trying to get the patents everywhere. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And again, it's, I mean, there are treaties, there's something called the Patent Cooperation Treaty that makes international filing a little easier, but you still have to pay for every country. And the most expensive thing is translating the patent into that local language 
um, and getting hiring a lawyer um, to to file it for you in that country. So it, it can become hugely expensive. Right. So apart from this aspect of geography, do you think there's any, I guess, sticky legal issues or debates that you anticipate will emerge in the field of biotech in the next few years? Oh, there there are tons of them. Uh, if any of your listeners are thinking about, you know, maybe um, after they get their PhD in molecular biology, going to law school, it's a great time uh, to do that uh, because there are endless issues in this area. We, we've talked about a number of them, but um, but but there are many, many more. Um, you know, the the prediction, the predictability, right, of, of some of these things. So there, there's a huge debate and a case going to the U.S. Supreme Court um, soon on um, antibodies and uh, antibody uh, patents. And I'm sure you and many of your listeners know uh, sort of the chemical structure of, of antibodies, but but they they have two parts basically. Uh, one part that uh, mostly stays the same and is targeted to a particular uh, pathogen or sequence. And then a bottom part that is random. It can be anything. There can be trillions of possibilities. Um, and, you know, patents generally claim an antibody such that they, in a very blanket way, say, and we, you know, we have the antibody with these particular uh, characteristics, but also, you know, in all 10 trillion um, other, you know, configurations of, of the other part. And, you know, the courts have been saying, you know, you can't do that, that, that you're, you're claiming too much. You haven't actually reduced to practice the invention in all of those trillions of, of ways. And uh, it's true. And um, that, so like no antibody patents have been upheld um, in, in like 10 years in the U.S. for this reason. And it's becoming a big concern. And so this one is going up to the Supreme Court. Um, you have legislation, right? I mentioned uh, Senator uh, Tillis and Coons have a bill uh, that would reverse the Myriad case, but not just Myriad. There are other cases that the Supreme Court heard around that time, one of which is um, Mayo uh, versus Prometheus Laboratories, which involved diagnostic uh, methods and whether just observing um the reactions uh, of the human body to a particular drug, um, you know, and then basing a dosing decision uh, on that, whether that's patentable. The Supreme Court said, no, it's not patentable um, because that is just a natural occurrence, right? Like uh, analyzing the amount of metabolites that are in the bloodstream after the patient metabolizes a drug should and can be used to uh, adjust their dosing. Um, in the next round, that was held to be not uh, patentable. The legislation I mentioned um, would erase that decision also. Um, it, it, it That decision has had some very interesting effects, including on the patents that um, um, were used to, um, to test fetal DNA using the mother's bloodstream, right? Uh, testing... Uh, uh, fetal DNA that was uh, in the mother's bloodstream rather than um, doing a much more invasive amniocentesis into the fetus itself. Um, it's much less invasive, much safer to test the fetal DNA from the blood. But that patent also was invalidated um, under these uh, under these provisions. So 
it's it, there's a lot of controversy and, and a lot of um action that that we'll see i haven't even talked about gene editing um which you know huge huge uh, patent and ip disputes underway as some of the leading original developers of this continue to fight over who should own uh, the basic patents to the CRISPR, uh, the CRISPR-Cas9 um, method of uh, gene editing. Um, and of course, you know, there are many other enzymes beyond Cas9 that are uh, being used in uh, gene editing and all of those, every single one of them is being uh, patented. So there are huge webs of licensing agreements that are emerging um, from patent holders to potential users um in in this space so uh the cost you know this will have an impact on the cost of course of these of these procedures and as we've seen the the first uh, gene therapy uh treatments that are out are extremely expensive like millions of dollars per uh per course of treatment so um that's the big issue also at, uh, that we're right. seeing no you you're right there's so many fascinating issues and even me like i come from purely biomedical sciences background, but I actually got drawn into the whole legal issue when I was reading um, Craig Venter's book, A Life ah. Decoded, where he he first describes, I guess, the the starts of the human sequencing project. And I was realizing all of, yeah, these, the turmoil of patenting, and I've been drawn to it ever since. Craig Venter, he he's another Utahan. First, I have to give the plug, uh, but but also uh, he was the one he was the one who started with the EST patents uh, mm -hmm. when he was at NIH. So um, yes, he had a long history in this in this area. He does speak about that. Yeah, I think that's a great way to finish off. So I really want to thank you for this conversation, and I'll point all the listeners towards your book. Um, the Genome Defense Inside the Epic Legal Battle to Determine Who Owns Your DNA, which you published just last year in 2021. Uh, and once again, to really thank you for your time. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Thank you for the conversation.